You're listening to Real Crime, the Movie Sleuth Podcast. Hey, hey, hey. We're actually back again. We haven't been here since July because, of course, like everything else, life gets in the way. But welcome back, everybody. Hello. Hello, hello. So hopefully everybody's been uh, staying healthy and happy and all that for the past few months. Um, Tonight we are going to talk about Martin Scorsese's new film, Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, But first, as usual, we do need to jump into our sponsors, which projectorscreen.com. They've been hanging around for quite a while now. And of course, uh, Dawn of the Collectors, our friend Rudy's... uh, monthly toy show hosts one downriver and one in St. Clair Shores every month. So wanted to mention them and news. There really wasn't like a lot of news no. this week. Not much at all. So, um, Matt, what's his name? Matthew Perry. Yeah. Matthew Perry passed away. Unfortunately at uh 54 years old, found him in his hot tub. I don't know. I don't even know what to say. Cause I'm not really like a follower. Of yeah. friends. Well, it's pretty tragic death. It's probably yeah. like good, you know, tell a lot of people, take care of your heart, take your heart meds, you know, and be careful yeah. when you get older. I'm going to turn you up a little, Michelle. But uh, yeah, that was a pretty, uh, it was like sudden. I remember I, I, I was actually like at a Halloween party and I was just checking Facebook and it popped up and I was like, oh, Matthew Perry died. And everybody was like, what? And I was like, Thought it was like fake, maybe because it just seemed random. But he's fifty. He was fifty-four, right? Yeah. Yeah, fifty-four years Wasn't old. Very old. That's very, very old, or very, very young. <laughs> <laughs> That's very, very old. <laughs> well, guess what? I guess I don't have long left. <laughs> um, Five Nights at Freddy's did seventy-eight million dollars this weekend. Dang. Which is insane. I don't think they were expecting this at all, but mm-hmm. it actually did very, very well. I'm um, surprised just because, like, the game's been out for like five years or something like that. Just seemed like a little, you know, too a little too late, too little too late. But apparently, it wasn't. I had a a lot of like my friends that are parents. You know, they took their kids because their kids were like very excited about it, and they said like everybody was saying their their showings were just like packed, like to the gills. So. It still has an audience, you know. I, I was just surprised because it's been around. That game's been out. There's like eight games now. Yeah. There's a couple of unofficial movies, too. There's the Banana Splits movie and Willy's Wonderland, which were – they they couldn't get an official uh, Five Nights at Freddy's movie off the ground yet, so they did those ones instead. But they've been trying to make this movie for like five years now, I think. Yeah, they've been tr- trying to work on it for a while. I'm just doing my shares here. So it'll be on all your pages now. <laughs> um, yeah, so Five Nights at Freddy's did like $78 million. And uh, the other thing that I saw a lot of news about was this intermission thing with Killers of the Flower Moon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess they were, um, some theaters were just inserting one. And I guess they were up, the studio was upset about it. Because I see like both sides of that issue. I personally think we should bring intermissions back because movies are just getting longer and longer and an intermission is perfect. Like put it in the middle, you know, or whatever, or wherever, it, you know, I think more of the issue is the director or the editor should be able to choose where that intermission is because an intermission can like kind of make or break a film's pacing. Yeah, um, totally. You need to like be careful where you put it or put it in certain area and kind of like, like, you know, where you want to, what, what mood you want to split the movie in half. I remember when I saw, uh, the Hateful Eight, I saw the Roadshow edition, and I felt like the intermission enhanced, like, how, like, I experienced the film, because Tarantino, like, put it in the perfect spot to, it was like a climax of a scene. Right. It was, like, really, like, powerful emotion, and then it was intermission, and the intermission had music that was composed just for it, and then when you came back, like, you had this vibe, like, you were ready for part two of the movie, and, you know, I think that needs careful planning and consideration and then where it gets placed where it gets placed and then Mm. you know a theater is just going to slap it somewhere right like you don't know where and every theater will put it probably in a different spot you know so every single theater is having this different version 
basically this different paced version of Killers of the Flower Moon. And the studio's like, well, we want the movie to be experienced in this really specific way, right? And then, like, they're messing with that. So I get, yeah. like, them being upset. But also, movies need some intermissions. I'm sorry. A three-and-a-half-hour movie, like, come on. Even if you don't even drink anything. First off, you shouldn't just have to go to a movie dehydrated. You know, just put the guy dang intermission in there. <laughs> you know? Well, and then also, I feel like the theaters, like, an intermission, like, people could go refill snacks, you know, get more drinks. So it's, like, win-win for everybody. Some, oh, totally. Everybody gets to pee. The, you know, the movie is, like, you know, gets to play. People can buy more snackos, take a wee-wee real quick, <laughs> not miss anything, come well, back. what the Redford does. They do yeah. intermissions for every movie, including the t- this hour-and-a-half ones. They put an intermission in, and they do pick good spots for it. And everybody, like you said, gets a chance to refill their... Their snacks, and they also, I think, have like a 50-50, so people can win a prize if they want. So, yeah. Um, I'm in favor of it. You come back to the movie refreshed. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, when they used to do it, like, I remember when I was a kid, and we would go, like, we went to go see the right stuff. Um, And there was an intermission in that. And, you know, it literally brought the image up on screen, intermission. Yeah. And it would play, like, music for a little while, you know, mm. for this 10 minutes or whatnot. Give you some time to go use the restroom, fill up your schnackos, <laughs> <laughs> and come back, you know. And it was it was a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. And it fit, you know. Yeah. The studio chose exactly where it went. Right. I don't get why they're so mad about it. I yeah. Mean, I understand if it is... Hindering the creative process or what they've created, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah, mm. I think, you know, every it just kind of turned into a thing. I'm doing air quotes. Uh, like They uh, can see you. Oh, okay. That's right. Well, <laughs> if they're listening later and they can't see you. Yeah. Um, but I think it was just kind of sensationalized for clicks, to be honest, because I'm like, is it that big of a deal? You know, that – and then when I read the quote, it wasn't like they were like, you know – you know, fuck intermissions and anybody that wants them. Right, they were right, just right. like, hey, you know, like we intended the movie to be seen a certain way and you guys are messing with that. I'm, you know, but I think as movies get longer again, I think intermissions are just going to have to be a thing. There's no way. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a three and a half hour movie, like you need to be able to go to the bathroom. Like, come on. I mean, yeah. everybody's like, oh, you just can't, I, you can't hold your pee for three and a half hours. Three and a half hours. I mean, I pee I mean, like I guess twice. I could drink anything all day and then go see a movie, yeah. but that seems a little ridiculous when there's an easy, uh, you know, solution to that. Everything is ridiculous now, though. Yes. 2023, we've been getting a lot of three-hour movies, Oppenheimer, uh, Bo is Afraid, and I'm trying to think of some other ones that were pretty major, but they're coming back. The really long films are are becoming the norm again. Well, I feel it's like it's a way of like, you know, keeping people like us interested in going to the theater. Yeah. Like I like a three hour movie. I would watch a four hour movie. I don't care about length at all. It doesn't matter to me. I will watch a movie if it's five hours long. Yeah. I don't care. Like it doesn't matter to, like, if it's, if it has the material to support that length, then I see no reason for there not to be, a three hour and 26 minute yeah. movie. But all right. In other news today, uh, I saw a couple rumors floating around that they are currently working on writing Sicario three and Emily Blunt, Josh Brolin and Benicio del Toro all want to come back for it. Were they mm. in two? They were not. Oh, oh wow. um, Josh Brolin was and Benicio del Toro was, yeah. mm. um, but Emily Blunt's character was kind of written out yeah. for the second one. Um, she didn't really need to be there for yeah. that story. And they kind of said a few times that <clears throat> they kind of figured her story was over yeah. with the original. And they didn't want to just you know put her back in there for no real reason. Mm-hmm. But apparently they're really trying to come up with a new story that would feature her character. Oh, okay. I love that first movie. The... Yeah, I didn't even know there was a part two, to be honest. Yeah, it's called Day of the Soldado. Oh. And it's basically about Benicio del Toro, you know, being this assassin. Oh, okay. Um, the director, he just did a movie I reviewed recently called Saburo, which was an Italian crime movie. And uh, <clears throat> there was also a TV series of Gamora, which was. Oh, yeah. And uh, there was that one Michael B. Jordan movie that he did for Amazon Prime. Uh, what's it called? Without Remorse. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm excited if he's on board for for this new Sicario movie. I didn't think Without Remorse was very bad. Like it was okay. You know, I think it was based on a Tom Clancy book, wasn't it? I think uh, so. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I don't read yeah. Tom Clancy. Okay. Yeah, but that, no, that was a decent movie. I like Michael B. Jordan, though. A lot of people don't, but I think I think he's a pretty good actor. So, suggested viewings. Who has one? Uh, I watched this movie today from 1982 called Disco Dancer. It was uh, a, a Bollywood ripoff of Saturday Night Fever that include, not only includes disco dancing, but... Uh, uh, martial arts fights and uh, mob fights and a lot of all manner of ridiculousness. It it starts out normal, but then gets more and more weird as it goes on. If you're into bonkers movies, that's that's definitely my top pick. All right, uh, I recently watched Motel Hell for the first time, uh, and I really liked it. It was like funny, funnier than I thought it was going to be, but it's basically about. Um, a farmer that has like a hotel and he also makes um, like sausages, like meats and like jerky and stuff. And it turns out like the jerky is made out of people and people that come to hotel go missing. And then like, he's actually like, you know, making the meat out of those people that they kidnap and they plant them in the ground up to their neck, like plants (laughs) and they cut their vocal cords. And it was like nuts. It was like really like weird and bizarre, but it was like funny. Too. I yeah, really it liked is, it. It's got a definite like dark comedic yeah. edge to it for mm-hmm. sure. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, well, I guess it's got a uh, Shot Factory put a 4K out of it. That's why I was yep. watching it for the first time because I picked that 4K. But it was real nice looking too, and real nice transfer. Cool. I'm gonna go with the one that we talked about earlier. When evil lurks, mm. movie is it just goes hard. Like I've not seen a horror movie. Like there are two times in this movie where I was watching it by myself in the basement and I screamed. <laughs> I literally screamed, oh, no shit, like two times. <laughs> I was like, it's brutal. Yeah. Like there's some shit that happens in this movie that you would never expect. Mm-hmm. Like it's shocking oh, what wow. happens and you're like, wow. Like this dude went like balls out. Yeah. Like I'm going to do some real horrifying stuff. And in this movie... You know, you always have characters that you think are safe. Yeah. Uh Uh-uh. Like, this guy's like, nope, I'm going to fuck with everybody. (laughs) Nobody Mm. has plot armor? Yeah. Yep. No plot armor. Well, I guess there's a little bit. But, I mean, and it's it's one of those horror movies. It's not fully descript in what's going on. You kind of just got to figure out a lot of it yourself, which is cool. Um, It's in Spanish. It's yeah. a lot like uh, The Wailing, which... Uh, oh, yeah, I like that movie. Where it's kind of a paranormal event, but it's overarching and taking over a whole community, and there's a... You're just with this small set of characters, but they create it in such a way that you feel a vastness, similar to Dawn of the Dead or Pulse or other post-apocalyptic yeah. horror movies. It just, like, and it sets you right down in the middle of what's going on without being, like, there's no setup. Yeah. There's no crawl saying, oh, the years, blah, 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 and this, mm-hmm. you know, Armageddon or yeah. zombie thing has happened. Plague has happened. You're just, like, thrown right into it, and you kind of got to figure out a lot of it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, again, nobody's safe. <laughs> and, like, I, just these two scenes, I was, like, I, I really can't even believe that this guy had the the balls to mm-hmm. do what he does in this movie um and the uh, the gore effects like there's no cgi in this movie it's all practical oh, effects nice. yeah. yeah and the practical effects makeup in it is uh like i assumed there was some cgi because of the size of the the effects were. oh yeah maybe maybe i assumed there would be but if there's not then that's even more impressive it looked mostly practical to me Mm. But yeah, Michelle, when you get a chance, well, I'm gonna check it out. Yeah, I think you will fully, fully enjoy it. It is available. Because you guys aren't the first people to like rave about it. I've seen like just in the past like three, four days. I've just yeah, everybody that's watched it said it was good. So yeah, yeah, it's on Shutter. Oh, I also watched Suitable Flesh. Kyle reviewed that one. Yeah, it's okay. Um, it really gets at like the '90s kind of like erotica vibe. Yeah. Um. 
which is cool. It looks really cheap, though. Oh. It almost looks like a TV show. <laughs> it's so cheap. But Heather Graham stars in it, yeah. and Jonathan Shake. Mm-hmm. From uh, the Doom Generation. We yeah, just and that. that thing you do. Mm-hmm. Poor guy. He's actually a pretty good actor. Yeah. He just never had much of a career. But Heather Graham looks great. Oh, okay. She does not age yeah. at all. And it's got Barbara Crampton in it, too. Oh, okay. Yep. So, very, very okay movie. Mm-hmm. So, tonight... We're going to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon. Discuss. <laughs> uh, who should start? Well, you can, did you like you? I mean, we. I think we all three liked it. Okay. I liked it. I don't put it like in his top five personally. Yeah. Um, I felt overall the production looked great. Leo. And De Niro, phenomenal. Their acting is amazing in this movie. And the scowl on yeah. Leo's face, mm. I mean, the perma scowl. Yeah. And he very much reminds me of uh, Billy Bob Thornton mm-hmm. from Sling Blade mm-hmm. in the way he talks in this. The only thing, the only bitch that I have about this movie, it's not the length. The length is fine. Like I said, I don't care how long a movie is. If it's good, it's great. Length is no problem. I felt like some of it just kind of beat me over the head with the same stuff Mm -hmm. repeatedly. By the time we're getting into like the ninth and tenth person being murdered in the movie, I kind of felt like we know. We already know how bad these people are. And we understand the gravity of these murders Mm -hmm. and how it's affecting the community and how disgusting it is. But I thought a little bit of that could have been trimmed back to fit in a little bit more story. Yeah. That's my only complaint. I thought the music was great, but it fit perfectly with the tone of the film. So I'll let you guys expand on this one. Um, It's been what, since 2019, since he's made a movie. The Irishman being his last film for Netflix, and that's still a pretty divisive film. I know you're not particularly a fan of it. No, I honestly, I hated that movie. And that's not something I say, you know, very often about a Scorsese film, but I've just, I just, I think the the technology just wasn't quite there for Mm de-aging, and it was like really overly super distracting to me to the point where like I could not pay attention to anything that was going on in this movie because it just looked so fake and horrible. I just couldn't I, I commend him for trying it but I just did not like that movie at all. And that was a pretty controversial take I had on it when it because everybody was like the movie of the century and I was like eh. <laughs> I just did not like that movie at all. That takes us back into that thing though. You know it's okay to not think everything is the greatest or the worst. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like for me, Killers of the Flower Moon, like it's very good movie. Yeah. It doesn't fall into his greatest films, but I can honestly say like it's a good movie, but I, I don't have to go into that, oh, it's the greatest thing he's ever done or the worst yeah. thing he's ever done. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's again, we've discussed this at length so many times now. I think that's still a problem. Where people go for uh, sort of, hyperbolic extremes mm-hmm. regarding a movie rather than meeting it in the middle. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, I know it's, it's got a lot of uh, Gangs of New York comparisons for obvious reasons, it being a sprawling period piece, but I kept thinking that there will be blood watching it, and not just because of Jack Fisk's production design. It was the same production designer on both right, movies. Right. But just the feel of the movie and the pacing and this idea of ruthless uh, chicanery to mass power over the uh, the oil reserves and how murderous the main characters become as a result structurally it struck me as a very similar movie oh it is it look it looks very similar too mm-hmm. and honestly i mean the two of them could be like like you could do a double feature. Yeah, back to back. Evil oil movies. Yeah, because they do fit <laughs> they fit together very, very well. I think um the movie requires you to do a little outside homework. Um because 
I don't think the movie, this is one of my negatives I have about it. I feel like it doesn't explain enough what was going on with the Osage and their money. It just kind of like, I didn't, I guess I, I wasn't picking up quite on like, you know, for, you know, people that don't know the history, I'll just give you like a little quick version of it. So they find the oil and then they give um, the Osage uh, like rights to the, 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 the oil money. Right. And it makes them rich. They kind of explain this in the beginning, but uh, they don't really go into what uh, basically uh, they passed a law that the Osage had to have guardianships like there. So there was like basically right. white bankers that controlled their money and they would have to go to these bankers to literally withdraw their own money that they were entitled to. Um, and and be, also they had to be declared competent enough to even access their money. Um, they also did stuff like blood quantum where like half Osage, less than half, they couldn't do stuff with their money. It was pretty crazy. Like it blew my mind that like they had, they were like one of the richest people literally on the planet and they couldn't hardly access their money. And through the guardianships, they would steal their money too. Like they would like charge them money to access their money. Yeah. They would like hold on to it. They would embezzle their money. Like it was like one of the biggest, like you know, just thefts of all time. And they kind of don't explain the guardianship aspect. Because I kept wondering, why was she going to this bank to get her money? I'm like, why doesn't she just have her money? Like, and they never really explained it. So after the movie, of course, I went and looked it up. And I was like, oh, the there's guardianships over their money. Like, the movie just kind of doesn't explain that well enough, in my opinion. Yeah. It kind of just assumes, because, you know, it's a historical event. Like, perhaps you... I honestly had never heard of this prior to this movie. Neither I, I'll I. be 100% honest. I never knew about this. Um, I don't know if it makes me a bad person. No. Or, or I think it's more just like our educational system is like gl- glosses over these type of things, right? Um, but, uh, you know, and I just kind of was like not getting that. I was like, why can't she get her money? So I look it up and I'm like, oh, they had guardianship. And then yeah. and then that like it makes the movie make even more sense. Like, the, I guess the movie, I, I guess it's probably smarter to, because there's a lot of uh, technical intricacies as to, why they were doing what they were doing, like uh, head rights and who had like rights to the money. And before they passed, and actually they didn't pass another law until like 1977 to make it to where like uh, like Osage people basically couldn't give head rights to non-Osage people. But, be, you know, before they could. So you could like marry an Osage woman or man. And then if they died, you get access, you get their head rights, which would be like their right, the, right. their money, right? So like they're basically doing this like embezzling and fraud where they're like marrying them and then literally killing them and then taking their money like that way and it kind of goes to your point where you were saying that it's kind of repetitive but i think that's on purpose because it's just trying to hammer in how many people had to die before somebody came to fucking investigate what was going on do something about it literally they said it was like 20 but they think it was hundreds of like deaths are attributed because they can't they couldn't prove all of them but they were like hundreds of of Osage were murdered for their money and for various in various ways, and it took like twenty murders before somebody would come see what was happening. And I think the movie's trying to impress upon you: look how many Osage people are dying, and nobody's doing anything about it. How is this like? It's like mind-boggling to you that like they just kept having these murders, and nobody thought nobody did. Nobody anything. thought anything of it because they were discounting yeah these Osage people as like. Not human. Yeah. Really. All they were was, you know, a source of income, a source of money and wealth. Yeah. So let's just kill them and take it. Right. Yeah. That was really disturbing to me when that woman, you know, towards the beginning Mm -hmm. is at the bank. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. asking for money. Right. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, you're not allowed to have it. And I'm like, but it's her money. Right. Why can't she have her money? Yeah, that's it what's just, crazy. That was what at what point I later I was like made a mental note. I'm gonna go look up what this is happening here because this is weird. I don't. I just didn't quite get the. I just didn't have the context of the his, the historical event uh, previous to that. But yeah, it's just you know not only like how disposable you know indigenous people were, but women just in general. Like you know they the women were just a means to the end. Um, what did you think of that, Andrew? Um, well, I thought, uh, uh, Lily Gladstone's performance was definitely the, the centerpiece of the film, uh, emotionally, uh, for the audience. 
Like once we find out what we do about the two main characters played by De Niro and DiCaprio, and we've obviously sided with uh, the Osage Indians, uh, the way the the way everything plays out with Lily Gladstone's character, all the dramatic power I think is is anchored by her, especially in the third act when uh, that last scene when he's. Uh, he can't even admit to her that he was putting poison in her insulin. Yeah, yeah. when she's like, "What? What? What were you giving me? Mm. What were you giving me?" And he's like, "Insulin." Yeah, <laughs> just couldn't and, even. And, yeah, and that was the end of it right there. Mm-hmm. So um, I was like, you know, doing research uh, just today to you know get ready for this podcast. And uh, the part in the movie where they blow up her sister's house, um, in real life, Ernest tried to send her and all his kids over to spend the night at that house so they would get blown up too. Mm-hmm. But the, And the only reason they didn't is because his son had earache and um, Molly didn't want to go over there because she was taking care of his son who was sick. And that's the only reason they didn't die. Like, Ernest in real life was, like, way worse. Like, I feel like... I think... What happened was, so, you know, Scorsese, you know, since we're following Ernest, right? Like, our story's following Ernest and Molly. I think he softened it a little. Mm. Like, in the movie, I feel like Ernest's uh, character seems like he's regretful, I guess. or Like, the movie implies that he really loved Molly, but, like, that perhaps he was just led astray. Like he's not, he's not a smart man. He's very easily influenced, Mm -hmm. you know, um, they kind of established that in the beginning. And then like, uh, King is very, you know, forceful, Mm -hmm. good at like controlling people. Mm -hmm. So Ernest was kind of just following what he was saying, like, you know, and that maybe had some regrets or that he loved Molly. But like, when you read about the real life, Ernest, like he, I don't think like, I, I, I get, you know, people are complex. I can, I can understand that maybe he loved her in a way or whatever, but I feel like the movie paints Ernest a little better, more like a regretful. what he was in real life. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, but I think that's just because you're watching a movie, and then, you know, Scorsese is probably like, well, dang, you know, you know, we're going to have to follow a piece of shit for, like, three hours. It's going to be kind of, like, overwhelming unless you have some kind of depth mm-hmm. to the character. Yeah, there had to be some, like, in some dynamic turn to the yeah. character. Because at the beginning of the movie, he seems kind of innocent, and, you know, back from, he was back from the war. Right. Right? Yeah. And just, you know, kind of damaged goods, but didn't seem like a bad person and mm-hmm. did seem like he was falling in love with her. Yeah. Because when he went to King, he kind of tells him, like, oh, I'm in love with this girl. Yeah. Et cetera. But, yeah, I mean, total sleazebag. All yeah. of them. Yeah. All of them. It's just wild to me, like, how diabolical king was in real life like mm-hmm. they said that he would go to their funerals and the funerals of the people that he had murdered he would be like their pallbearer like the the fucking audacity on this man right right is insane to me i don't know what kind of sociopath like could sleep at night having people murdered and also he would have people murdered and then he would have the people that murdered them murdered so yeah. like the cover they kind of do it in the movie a little bit they cover that but he that was like his thing that's like his pl- his long game was, you know, like literally just eliminate all traces. That shit diabolical. I I'm sorry. I just like it's so hard. Just just so evil. Like <laughs> it just blows my mind that you know that was allowed to continue for just decades. Like people, you know, he had that scam going for so long. You know. Well, and how sad that it was that this was just a, a further extension <clears throat> of the white man coming in and taking over everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and nobody needs to get upset about me saying that because that, but that's what happened. That's yeah. the truth. You know, we came here and we took their land and then this was just another extension of that. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know? And you know, and I like that in the film, they kind of paralleled it with the Tulsa massacre because mm-hmm. it's a similar situation in which uh, people of color uh, had money and white people didn't want them to have the money, or they're jealous, or they're trying to steal it. And in the Tulsa massacre case, they just murdered them. They just went to so violent. They didn't even. There was no way they could really get their money. They just were killing them just because they didn't want black people to have money. Yeah. But this is a similar situation where 
you know, uh, the white people at the time, they just didn't they didn't think that the Osage deserved that money because they were weren't white. Like, yeah. So they found they just they literally just passed laws to be able to steal the money from them. And it's like insane how long it took for them to pass other laws to like outlaw that until 1977. And this takes place in 1920s. Um, even just recently, like I think like this year or last year, they were trying to pass some other law trying to get it to where people that non Osage people that inherited head rights uh, cannot give those rights back to Osage members. And they're trying to like get this law through to where if somebody has the money, they can actually give it back to the tribe if they're non Osage. But like, I guess you can't for some weird reason. It's just wild to me that they were just subjugated for so long, like, like decades and decades and decades. And it's still, and, we, and then how the, how the hell am I just hearing about this now? Like, how did I not hear, how it's, is this story not like, more, you know? It's hidden history. It's the yeah. stuff they don't want you to hear. It's the stuff that nobody ever talks about. Yeah. Like we understand, yeah, you know, Native Americans were slaughtered and raped and children killed and villages burned and, you know, their livestock destroyed and their way of life destroyed. And this is, again, it's just another extension of all that horrific nonsense that went on. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, it's just sad altogether. Um, stylistically, as a, as a movie, um, it's hard to believe that this was shot by Rodrigo Prieto in the same year he shot Barbie. Same cinematographer for both movies. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like the most polar opposite aesthetics yeah. ever. Mm. But they both look great. Yeah. Faux show. <laughs> um, Robbie Robertson's uh, score, let's talk about that a little bit because it was kind of like a, it was kind of like a old Western sort of mm -hmm. a score with with some Indian music in it and some some measure of chanting, but mostly it was... It was like a southern gothic kind of a score. Yeah, it was really nice. It it suits the narrative for sure. The music worked as its own character. Mm -hmm. I mean, before we were we were discussing, you know, before we started the podcast, before while we were setting up, but that uh, we talked about how when it was originally written, the script for this film, mm -hmm. it followed the book. So in the book, mm -hmm. um, it's more of a police procedural. Mm -hmm. um, I have not read the book, actually. I, the, I'm getting it delivered tomorrow, but I just, in preparation for this, I looked into the book and how it's structured. Uh, it's like a police procedural wherein uh, you're following um, Tom White, who Jesse Plemons plays, the FBI agent. You're following him as he's trying to investigate, like, what is happening in this, like, Oklahoma area or whatever with these murders. And then uh, it's in, in the middle of the book, the twist is that it's Hale king hale doing it um you don't know that until the middle of the book that's who's doing it like it's kind of like a slow burn mystery in your through tom uh white's eyes right and then uh so originally uh DiCaprio was supposed to play tom white the fbi agent mm -hmm. and he decided that he wanted to play um ernest instead so scorsese redid the script to make it about ernest instead of about the fbi agent so it's actually from a whole different perspective than the book. Like, these characters are in the book, but there's not, like, center place, right? Right. So in doing so, it's actually... I just find it ironic that people are saying that this movie is a white savior movie when actually Scorsese retooled it to be less of a white savior movie because, you know, in the book, it. I mean... It's just, I mean, obviously that's history. That's it's it's what happens. It's not like the guy that wrote the book did it on purpose, but like it was a white savior story more so in the book. And then by retooling it to be about about Ernest, it also makes it more about Molly, right? Because they're married. So he actually put the focus more on the Osage in the movie than the book did. So it's actually interesting. Like they're like companions to each other, right? Like so, if you read the book, you get a whole different view. So it's actually it's like a really cool way to uh, adapt something, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like they're two like complementary halves of the same story. So you can kind of like get different, uh, you know, viewpoints from both mediums. Mm -hmm. They're, they're tool. I guess what I'm trying to say is they're both specifically tooled for the medium that it is. So, yeah, it, yeah. you know, the police procedural, I guess there's a lot of technical jargon and stuff that works better in a book, right? Cause that would be really 
uh, dry in the film. Mm-hmm. But the film focuses more on the emotional heart of the story, which is Ernest and Molly. So I, I don't know. It's just neat to see how they did that. So how does this movie qualify as a white savior movie, though, because of the FBI coming in and helping? Well, so the arguments I see are that the movie does at times come away from. So like I would say the first hour is really Osage uh, heavy, like it's very focused in on what they're doing, the tribe, Mm -hmm. their characters, Molly and her sisters and her mom. And then as the movie progresses to, like, the center part where all the murders kind of start happening and then towards the second and third act, it kind of comes away from that. And it's more like Ernest, right, and how he's dealing with stuff and trying to set up his own little side scheme, side uh, side deals with people, how he's dealing with uh, King Hale and all that stuff. So I feel like the, the, the focus shifts from Molly more to Ernest in the second half of the movie. And then it's, like, Ernest's trial, all that stuff. Yeah. So I think... Uh, because of that, uh, people are kind of getting the idea that maybe it should have focused on Molly more. And also there's that uh, Scorsese um, cameo at the end where it's like super meta. Yeah. So, so like the ending's like really interesting. Stop it from talking too much. Sorry. I just no, I just fine. really like the ending to this film. Uh, the ending, I was going to, I was actually just thinking about it for a second there. It's uh, kind of his way of uh like you were saying on on uh one of your posts about it that his way of admitting that he's not really qualified to tell this story yeah yeah so i think um and i actually talked to you probably talked about that uh discussion i was having with another critic where he was saying martin scorsese appearing in the film is like tacky i guess or him you know he's bringing attention to himself but i think the whole point is how it transitions from the film to the radio play and how that you know how the radio play feels really uh artificial forced mm-hmm. uh, a little corny right uh, and then scorsese comes out and he just talks about how like you know you, you just can't tell this story in a way that's like going to be 100 percent authentic mm-hmm. so he's basically saying i'm the same as this radio play you know there's just always going to be something lost in adaptation and mm-hmm. and and you know an osage like if we wanted this movie to be 100 percent authentic we would have an osage director right direct it mm-hmm. if, if you want the voice to match the the source material but obviously in my opinion i don't think and i think this is bad but i don't think they would give an osage director 200 million dollars to make a movie mm-hmm. they just wouldn't i'm sorry that the state of the world is what it is so it was either this story doesn't get told you know, or you let Scorsese, you know, and Scorsese knew they'd give him two hundred million dollars to make it. And it was a passion project. And I feel like as he's getting older, he's getting he's even talked about as he gets older, he's been like been seeing world in a different way. Like he's there's all these viewpoints he'd never really considered, mm-hmm. you know, you know, before. And now he has. And as an older man, he's like he's he's starting to realize like i'm getting old and i only have so much time to tell stories and i've kind of been ignoring these certain viewpoints and you know and now i want to tell these stories so well and this is him like outside of the comfort zone as yeah. well i mean still working mm-hmm. with actors that he always works with yeah. cuz leo leo and robert de niro are like his main guys now yeah but this isn't another gangster movie right because he's done that to death at this point yeah him narrating the radio show at the end, I kind of looked at it like he was a storyteller of the movie, mm. and now he's the storyteller of the radio show. Yeah. So mm. it's just moving between mediums. Right. So he, he told the story directing the movie, and now he's the storyteller at the stage play or radio show of it. Yeah. The same. So. Mm. He's always had a way of working himself into his movies rather sneakily. I mean, look at Taxi Driver and yeah. the whole uh, mad cabbie scene. It's rather infamous. And uh, I, mean, I think he also plays the assassin in Mean Streets. His, yes. His uh, second or third movie. So he's kind of always done that. So I don't know why people are saying, well, he's calling attention to himself. Like he's just doing what he's always done. Yeah. I, I mean... I wouldn't say that the way he does it in this movie is subtle at mm-hmm. all, but I feel like a lot of times you can't be subtle, you know, and stuff. And then people, he really wanted you to get this point that like this story happened. It was real life. And 
maybe he's not the best qualified person to tell it, but he still wanted to tell it. Mm-hmm. And this is the story that you're going to get, right? Like, um, he just, I don't know. It didn't feel like the other critic was kind of like implying that it was like maybe egotistical of him to do so. But I don't, I, it did not It's feel that way at all. It felt very tasteful to me, in my opinion. I think he just wanted to come out and be like, hey, you know, maybe, you know, I wish it was different. I wish other people could have told this story. But in the society that we live in right now, Mm-hmm. You can't, you know, and I feel like it's better, you know, and he worked with tons of Osage people. They did like all the props. He had uh, he did he all t- the costuming. Yeah. He, had to, he spent a, quite a bit of time getting their trust and eventual participation in the project. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, you know, Osage are not a, a monolith, right? They're not like one entity Borg mind or anything. So if you look online, uh, different Osage uh, individuals have different opinions on it. Some of them love the movie. Some of them are very critical of the movie. They're 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 just people, right? So they're all going to have the whole, you know, uh, you know, whole gamut of opinions from good to bad. They're, that that's just going to be how it's going to be, you know. I don't see really how. I mean, and obviously their opinions are opinion, but I don't see how this movie could be like looked at negatively by the Osage people because he does nothing in this movie to make them look bad yeah. whatsoever other than King's helper guy that was like the boozer yeah. and always in trouble. Mm-hmm. Like that felt very like they've done this with Native Americans a lot yeah. where they paint them as, you know. Drunks. Drunks. Yeah. You know, off mm-hmm. the reservation, mm-hmm. so to speak, yeah. you know. But I think overall – he handled the culture of it very well. Yes. I think it was quite respectful, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, one uh, negative thing I've seen people say is it was, like, very gruesome. And perhaps he sh- he didn't need to, you know, show their, like, brains falling out when he got yeah. shot in the back of the head. But that's just Scorsese being Scorsese. I think he yeah. just doesn't pull punches. That yeah. he's just That's just the kind of guy. He's like, oh, if somebody gets murdered, I'm going to show it. Yeah. You know? It's just – I just find the discourse around this movie a little – confusing because you know he made silence which takes place in japan yeah has a mostly japanese cast um and it's actually kind of a similar type of like movie about you know colonizers and and all that stuff and i didn't really hear that criticism of it like why is he making this movie about the japanese when he's not japanese i don't know why all of a sudden this movie is getting that criticism when he i think because silence did not have the publicity that this movie had. Yeah. Silence, I mean, I almost had not heard anything about it. There's still a lot of people who haven't seen it. Yeah, there's a lot of people that are still like, what's that Scorsese movie? I've never even heard of it. Like, that was a very, like, under-the-radar, very um, calm, collective narrative that a lot of people just wouldn't be interested in in general. Yeah. So I think this is different in that way. I went to see that movie in the theater, and it was so quiet. Me and you uh, saw it together. You could hear the other movie, uh, yeah, movie, movies playing adjacent. Yeah, I, to that the happened auditorium. to me with Flowers. Like I think they were playing Eras or whatever. Yeah, yeah Taylor uh, Swift. Taylor Swift yeah, thing too. next to it, and it was yeah. like goosh, 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 yeah. goosh. You know, like I'm trying to watch me. I was like, dang, I wish they could soundproof it better. Or I feel like maybe like they could plan it to where they put two quiet movies like next to each other so mm. that it doesn't do that. But I'm sure they don't give a shit. So whatever. But, um. But yeah, that's just some of the like you're just gonna get this kind of criticism about anything. But the thing about like Scorsese is like always championing other countries' movies. Like he had that the thing for Criterion where he was uh, paying for movies to get like re-released mm-hmm. in those uh, the World Cinema Collections mm-hmm. that he did for them. He literally pays out of his own pocket for like movies to get you know uh redone and re-released and he's super champion for cinema all over the world not just american cinema Mm. so i I just i guess i don't know why some people are are attributing malice to him just wanting just like to tell a story do i think more uh minorities should have chances to tell their stories 100 percent. oh absolutely but do i think also, that directors of any race should be able to tell the story they want to tell. Yes, and and you know, and it will it be successful every time. No, but I think the story wouldn't have got told the way it did without Scorsese being able to get funding 
for that. I mean, he could shit. He had to go to Netflix to get Irishman made. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so even he has trouble, you know, getting money. So I can't even imagine like a Native American person being like, "Oh, I want to make a two hundred million dollar movie." Hollywood's gonna be like, "No." Yeah, that wouldn't happen. I mean, and... it's sad that it wouldn't, but it's, it wouldn't. You know. Mm-hmm. And jumping from Netflix to Apple TV, but I think this was his uh, his uh, third or fourth Paramount movie mm-hmm. after. Silence and the Wolf of Wall Street and uh, Shutter <clears throat> Shutter Island, I think, was a Paramount movie. I think it's kind of crazy, you know, how Leo, I mean, can just jump from these role, role to role, from Jordan Belfort in the Wolf of Wall Street to this. Mm-hmm. They're such opposing ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, this absolutely crazy, like, 80s, you know... Blown out of his mind on coke, yeah. sniffing, you know, blow out of a hooker's ass to this. Mm-hmm. It's it's really kind of crazy. And sometimes I don't think Leo really gets the recognition that he deserves. Yeah. I think he gets passed off a lot. But mm-hmm. he is really a very, very good actor. Yeah. And I think the first time I saw that with him was probably the Basketball Diaries. Mm-hmm. It was like, holy shit. Like, at that point, I was like, this kid can act, yeah. you know, but yeah, he kind of runs the gamut with the roles. And I think that's the thing. The older he gets, he seems to do more and more and more and change it up. Like he's never just stuck to yeah. one thing. Being typecast. Mm. Yeah. I'm curious what kind of career Lily Gladstone's going to have after this, because she was retired. She did Certain Women, the Kelly yeah. Reichardt film, which is totally worth seeing just for her performance in it and uh scorsese had to coax her out of retirement to do this movie and now it's like blowing up for her so i'm curious what kind of roles we're going to see from her i mean she'll probably get an oscar nomination i can't see that she won't Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean what i love about her too is like she's so unique looking Mm -hmm. she's not your like atypical yeah like Native American yeah. woman in a movie, like she is, she has this unique look about her, her and presence. she's presence and very powerful, yeah. mm-hmm. very very powerful. Yeah, because a lot of this, her role in this is more like acting with your eyes, acting with your physical presence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's very like dignified in it. Uh, you know, and you know, and I when I was watching it, I'm like. You know, I'm thinking they got to know that these men aren't like marrying them (laughs) for love, I guess. Like when I'm watching, I'm like, it seems pretty obvious to me. But back then, I think people I had I had to kind of like check myself because I'm like women didn't have a lot of uh, rights and abilities. Yeah. You needed a man to do stuff like like up and, you know, you need a man to manage money and own land. So these women were not only uh, trapped from being indigenous and, and Native American, they were also trapped because they were women. So they had like the double whammy, right? They were not men, so that was even less rights, and they were Native American women. So like they just had this dual like force pressing down on them. So, you know, it, you you couldn't be a spinster really back then. You Like you wouldn't be able to survive, right? So they would marry these men just to get, because you needed a man to do damn near anything. So they were kind of like trapped, I guess you could say. Um, wanted to mention what you were saying about how much she does uh, by saying so little and uh, just going for facial expressions. That was a big thing in uh, certain women also. Most of her performance was without dialogue. It was just on her expressions and her eyes looking at the camera or even not looking at the camera. When That's she's like the like sign of a down. great actor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. One that can use expressions to act and communicate. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about. But yeah. Um, but overall, I I would definitely, I don't know if I would put it maybe, it would be like in my top 10 Scorsese films. And I, I mean, can we, what's another director that in their 70s and 80s had this good of a run? Because usually, you know, when a director gets really old, they start petering out, not doing, you know, as good. I, I don't know, like Dario Argento. 
is uh, a pretty good example of that. When he got older, I Ridley think Ridley Scott. Yeah, I mean, Ridley is a Scott perfect is, example. He's eighty four yeah. or so. Yeah, I but mean, it's been like the last several Ridley Scott projects. I mean, he's still doing good stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. like I like Prometheus, <clears throat> Covenant. I try. I did watch Covenant again like three <laughs> weeks ago. I was like, no, just not for me. But Ridley Scott, it's dwindling returns. Yeah, yeah. Like I just don't feel like. It's like bands, the same thing where, you know, bands that, you know, were popular in their 19, you know, 20, in their mid 20s, whatever, like they just don't produce good music like they did when they were young. Yeah. Same thing with directors. Most of them, the older they get, they kind of lose it. Like Francis Ford Coppola. Like, Mm -hmm. when was the last time he made a good movie? Well, he's working on this supposedly gargantuan Metropolis, Megalopolis. Oh, yeah, Megalopolis. That's right. <clears throat> I think Whenever what makes Scorsese, you know, Scorsese, like, unlike some old people, he actually, I feel like he tries to stay relevant and like, you know, like he's on TikTok with his daughter and he, and he participates in like, he still is part of the zeitgeist. Like he didn't check out and be like, well, everything everybody made Except, you know, in the last 20 years, it's garbage because I'm old and I don't even try to understand yeah, anything. He just joined Letterboxd, didn't he? Yeah, he just joined Letterboxd. Like, <laughs> I think it's great, though. Like, I feel like more older directors could learn from him because mm. look how he's relevant. He's re- like you ask a 20-year-old about Martin Scorsese and they know about him because he, mm. he kept himself relevant. He never stopped experiencing new things trying out new stuff he didn't get stodgy and like you know i mean i guess the marvel movies thing everybody like you know and he didn't even like really say they were all bad he just yeah he was just saying the state of the movie industry including the way that they market the superhero movies like it's kind of bad for business for smaller productions Mm. like he wasn't saying all superhero movies are bad they're all, you know, but if, you know, everybody kind of like glomped onto that, but he kept himself relevant and fresh and, and a lot of directors I think could learn from that. Like you don't, just because you're getting old doesn't mean you have to just discount everything modern and new as being bad. He, he puts in the work and that's why he still is relevant and makes fantastic films. Yeah. And I think that whole Marvel thing with him just got completely blown out of proportion like it always does it was on social media he makes a comment and then somebody runs with it Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it's like oh he's just a crabby old fuck that doesn't what comic book movies well he never said that it was a repeat of the roger ebert versus video games discourse yeah Yeah. it was just another version of that same argument i mean he literally said video games are not art and he like didn't play them Mm. so i guess his was a little bit more his is more dismissive, in my opinion, like than Marty was. Marty was like, they have a purpose, but the way that they're, you know, being, they're overtaking everything. Right? Mm. Like Ebert was just like, games aren't art. Like, a hundred percent, just dismissed the whole entire like medium of things. Which is crazy. Yeah, he kind of softened on that uh, a little bit when he got older. Ebert did. Mm. But yeah, Ebert, <laughs> you know, if I. Yeah, I, I think he's a fantastic, he was a fantastic critic and he like, you know, like pioneered like a lot of like stuff that in modern criticism, but he had like, he hated horror movies for the most part. He was real stodgy about those and like, he had a lot of like quirks to him, you know, and things I didn't agree with him. The games one was another one, but you know. Well, yeah. He was hardcore, like not into horror yeah. at all. Well, yeah. there there were some exceptions to that rule. Like uh, everybody was piling on the last house on the left, the original, and he was one of the only critics that stood up for it and reviewed it positively. And uh, Dawn of the Dead gave it, I think, four out of four. Said it was one of the best horror films of the decade, if not of all time. So the, he had his moments of liking horror, and he also wrote uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is. Uh, I mean, the whole, it's my happening, baby, and it freaks me out line from Austin Powers. <laughs> that's that's Roger Ebert wrote that line. <laughs> yeah, but like I'm saying, you know, it wasn't a bad guy. He just had his little, you know, opinions on things just like Martin Scorsese does. But, um, but I, I think that, uh, you know, and I, I saw an interview with Scorsese, and he's like, I want to keep making movies till I can't, you know? Like, he just wants to keep going, and I'm all for him. I hope he lives another 10 years and... I mean, I, he's, I mean, he doesn't have many, I, I mean, realistically, I'm not trying to be like mean or anything, but he just doesn't have a whole lot of time left. Like, 
He'll probably uh, squeeze out another one or two. Yeah. I mean, look at Clint Eastwood's 93 years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's making a movie right now, right? Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I think as long as Scorsese stays in good health, mm-hmm. I mean, he appears to be in good health. Yeah. How old is George Miller right now? I think in his 80s as well. Wow. Mm. And David Cronenberg just finished another movie. And he's like in his 80s, right? Yeah. I think a lot of uh, one thing that filmmakers have now, they didn't have probably back in the mid-60s or 70s. They have a really strong support system. So like they can keep making movies the way they want, but they have a lot of uh, people around to help them do the do the heavy lifting. Yeah. Made for a lot of uh, unique projects, the wild, wildest of which probably being, uh, for me personally, uh, David Lynch's Twin Peaks: The Return. George Miller's like seventy-eight. Oh, how old is uh, David Lynch? Um, at the time he did that show, I think he was in his seventies. Dang, he's been kind of quiet lately. I will say. I mean, he's like doing his little David Lynch stuff, but like. I mean, like on the creative front, you know. Mm, and remastering his back catalog for yeah. Criterion, but as far as making new stuff, it's been about it. I think that return of Twin Peaks probably burnt him out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, an eighteen-hour show. So, here's the one thing about Killers of the Flower Moon because we got way off track. Yeah, and Scott <laughs> would used to, used to say we got in the weeds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The one thing about Killers of the Flower Moon, where like there will be blood, is very rewatchable, mm-hmm. just because Daniel Day Lewis. I mean, he carries that entire movie on his shoulders mm-hmm. with easily. Yeah, there's a lot of quotable lines in that movie. Mm-hmm. It it moves a little bit faster than this does, even though there's some pretty quiet parts in it as well. Um, I don't know with Killers of the Flower Moon. I don't know how many times I need to rewatch this one. Yeah. That was the one thing I thought when I left the theater. I was like, okay, it's a good movie. I didn't think it was the greatest thing or the worst thing of all time. But I did walk out of there thinking, I'm not really sure that I'll really ever need to watch that again. It, it doesn't have that, that rewatchability factor. Yeah. Or maybe it will. Well, I'm, you know, and I don't even necessarily think that's a bad thing. There are some movies I think are masterpieces, and I don't ever want to watch them again. Mostly because most of those movies I or is the if there is the subject matter is like really intense or something or disturbing or upsetting, I guess. Um, and I, you know, and I don't think that's a bad thing, a, a ding on the movie. You know, maybe some movies just or you experience them once, and yeah, that's your experience with it. You know, well, like. No, oh, not to ahead. cut you off, but like Clint Eastwood, who mentioned earlier, a lot of his movies, you watch them once and you get everything on the first try. There's mm-hmm. no yeah. like subtlety or nuance to them. Everything is right there for the cherry picking, and yeah, there's no reason to go back for another helping after that. I well, think Killers is kind of like that too. It's it's pretty straightforward. You get what you you get. You know, like it's just it's just you know history, so it doesn't really have a lot of. I mean, it's, it has like subtext and subtleties and that and whatever, but it's very straightforward you know mm-hmm. i just felt like okay like gangs in new york i've probably watched that movie 15 times yeah goodfellas i mean 50 times probably yeah. Yeah. that's a constant like oh it's time to watch goodfellas again casino same thing uh I, wolf of wall street mm-hmm. what year did that come out 2018 yeah i've probably seen that movie 10 times yeah and if I'm like flipping around, like streaming, like, oh, I just want some, oh, I'll just pop Wolf of Wall Street on. Mm-hmm. A lot of his other movies do. They just have that thing where you get into it, you're sucked into the characters, and you can rewatch it. Yeah. And just, like I was saying, this one in that aspect, I will watch it again at some point. Mm-hmm. But this one, I'm not like where the Wolf of Wall Street, I was like, oh man, I can't wait until that thing comes out. Yeah. You know, I can go get the Steelbook and I can watch it at home on 4K, blah, blah, blah. This one, yeah. I just, I don't feel like, I'm like, I already saw it. Mm-hmm. And again, like you said, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. It just doesn't have that hook to it. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a movie that I'm like that with is The Deer Hunter, which I think is a legit, just absolute masterpiece. I've mm-hmm. only seen it twice, though. I just, just, it's just, you know, it's just that movie that, like, you just need to rewatch a lot. 
it just doesn't need it, I guess. You know, it's just everything's there and, you know, it's just, I don't know. Just don't get there. And it doesn't make me think less of the film if I don't want to rewatch it. It's just, you know, some movies are just more entertaining and they're made to be rewatched. You know, they're just fun or you know, like, you know, like, you no, know, like John Wick or something like that. Mm-hmm. Watched that a bunch of times, sure. But, you know, like Schindler's List, I've seen that twice. You know, I just got, it's just so harrowing. It's like, you know, you come don't. and see. I've seen that twice. Like, I just. Right. It's just a rough. To it's a go rough ride. Those, yeah. You mm-hmm. know? It's like, do I want to drag myself yeah. through that again? Yeah. Because you almost feel like abused by that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think we covered everything in the movie. Do you have anything else you want to add, Andrew? Um, I'm just curious how much it's going to blow up when it hits streaming because. It seems like a lot of people that won't do a three and a half hour movie are waiting to watch it at home. Yeah. I'm curious what the discourse will be then when it hits that phase of its run. See, if I have the option, I, no matter what myself, I will go to the theater. Yeah. If it's one of these dual release things in the theater and at home, you can guarantee I'll be at the theater. Yeah. Now, like Five Nights at Freddy's, eh, <laughs> you know, I don't need to see that in the theater, but something as grand as this is in scope yeah like i had to go see it in dolby yeah, yeah. you know you need it too. you know uh, and, i did imax and i know i've got a good projector and good sound down here and all of that it's still not the same yeah mm-hmm. like i want to go and see it on the biggest screen possible but i would definitely at some point want to do a double like there will be blood killers of the flower moon like back to back that'd be a long night though yeah yeah we're gonna start yeah. that earlier in the day. Be like seven hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I, I, I am intrigued by Andrew bringing up the two. There's like a phase, right? Phase one of a movie's release, theater, and mm-hmm. then the theater reactions. Phase two, streaming, and the streaming reactions, and a lot of times they're like different. Mm-hmm. And I was trying. I think I asked that question on Facebook like a while. Like why? Like why? Why is it different? Why? I, is it because the type of people who would go see a movie in a theater are maybe more watch more movies and like you know they're they're more excited about film and criticism and they I, I, I'm not trying to say it's like you know critics versus general audience but no. I just feel like movies kind of get different like I'll go see something in the theater and then everybody that saw it theatrical is like yeah awesome it's so good and then it hits streaming and everybody's like it's a piece of crap and I'm just like how did this movie get these completely polar opposite reactions just because of like how it was watched I guess. Does it? Does that make sense? Like I don't. Understand. No, it does. I, I remember that actually when Titanic hit VHS, everyone <clears throat> loved that movie. It, it copped all the awards and was the best film of the year. Hits video has like a complete 180 turnaround with the general public on that movie. Everyone said, "How I can't believe this won awards! A total garbage! I hate it!" and I don't know if it's because of the film's popularity or the. I think it's burnout. I think that's a big part of like that one, like Mm -hmm. because that was like a cultural phenomenon when that movie came out. That was huge, and I think people just got burned out about hearing about Rose and Jack. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. they had seen it a couple times. That song was like on the radio twenty four seven. No, I mean, I just think, you know. Look at how many people write for the website and don't even really want to go to the movie theater anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For me, going to the theater, again, if I have that option, I'm going there to see it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some stuff that maybe I didn't need to see in the theater, but I would rather go there no matter what, anyways. Mm-hmm. But I think for a lot of us, it's it's not just the uh um what happened? I went to the theater for When Evil Lurks. Oh, did you? And then there were uh, there was a Spanish couple that sat in front of me, and I'm surprised they didn't get up and walk out during some of the more gruesome scenes in that. <laughs> I think also when you watch a movie theatrically, you're more immersed. Um, no, I mean, no matter how I just it's always a little distracting at your house. You know, there's noises and people doing stuff, and I live in an mm. apartment, so I hear people doing shit and. Or a lot of people watch movies and then do shit on their phone while the movie's in the background, you know, and you kind of can't do that in the movie theater. I mean, you can, but people kick your ass or you'll get kicked out. But 
I just feel like maybe you absorb a movie better in a theater because there's less distractions. It's a really big screen. Your field of vision is just that movie. It's dark, quiet. It's just you can you're just set up to absorb a movie better mm-hmm. in a movie theater than at home, you know. And that's not even discounting. Like you know, I have like a 4K TV and all that stuff, so I have like a good like presentation. But it's just can't compete with mm-hmm. a, a theater presentation, in my opinion. So maybe that's another reason why people. Like when a movie hits streaming, it gets a different reaction than when it hits theaters because mm-hmm. it's just like people are experiencing it two different. Or they're ways. half watching it, like half watching the movie and doing something else with yeah. their phone, or yeah. or working on something. You know, and I'm guilty of that too. I'm not trying to you know say like I'm you know not fucking around or like you know at home. I try not to, but it's just it's just so much more distractions like you know at your house than at a theater. So mm. that maybe might account for it. Cool. Well, I think we're good for tonight, guys. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We're going to try to be back next week, I think. I hope. (laughs) (laughs) It's so hard to plan things these days. So thanks for coming by, guys. Visit us at www.themoviesleuth.com and find The Movie Sleuth on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and iTunes.